Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'll be quite honest with you. I'm torn between breaking your neck here and taking you and throwing you down the stairs. Do you have any idea what it's like in jail? Of course you don't. Tell me, did it give you pleasure to think of me inside? No. But you did nothing about it? No. Do you think I assaulted your cousin? No. Did you think it then? Yes, yes and no. And what's made you so certain now? Growing up. Growing up? I was 13. How old do you have to be to know the difference between right and wrong? Hello, and welcome to the Booker Prize podcast. With me, James Walton. And me, Joe Hanya. And what you just heard there was James McAvoy, Romola Garay, and Kira Knightley in the 2007 film Atonement, directed by Joe Wright. The film got seven Oscar nominations, including for Best Picture. In the end, in fact, it only won for Best Original Score, although that was great too. Um, if all goes to plan, we'll return to the film later. But this being the Booker Prize podcast, we'll be concentrating mainly on the Ian McEwan novel on which the film was based. Atonement, shortlisted for the 2001 prize, is by far McEwan's biggest selling book, um, especially, but not only, after the film came out. And for many people, including me, it's his best, even though he won the booker in 1998 with Amsterdam. His, he himself has described the success of the book as a complete one-off, with about six million copies sold now, which, um, if you're not familiar with sales figures for literary novels, uh, translates as absolutely astonishingly loads. Um, and the reason we're coming to Atonement now is because it's September. And so this is the first in an occasional series looking at book of books that feature on UK school syllabuses, which Atonement has done since 2005, only four years after it was published. Other booker nominated novels on school syllabuses, incidentally, some of which will be getting uh, the same treatment here as the school year goes on. Joe, any that uh, we've got the list here, any that you're surprised to see or not surprised to see? Or I mean, I don't know if it's a question of surprised or not surprised. There are a lot that I wish I could could have studied at A level because I think the texts I had for A level were they were fine but they were kind of you know rather conventional. Uh, Joseph affair. Andrews by Henry Fielding and Handful of Dust by Evelyn Waugh. I mean, uh, pretty good. But like A Month in a Country by Jell Carr, which I guess is actually is a, a book, book of, a novel. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, but like dry, I didn't like it. And I wish I could have done something like Mohsen Hamid's The Reluctant Fundamentalist would have been so much fun. Um, would have loved to be able to do The Handmaid's Tale. I feel like that is ripe for a load of 16-year-olds to, you know, pick over. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, maybe I could have gotten on to Ian McEwan sooner if I'd read Saturday at A-Level. <laughs> uh, okay, let's have a look at them. I'm, I'm rather surprised to see, although very, very pleased uh, to see uh, Spies by Michael Frayn. I mean, not 
Booker's most famous books, or indeed one of his. But it's a lovely book about um, two boys growing up in, in the Second World War, clearly autobiographical. For the duration is the bit I remember about it. You know, sh- this, this, this place is closed for the duration. Mm. And I mentioned that to someone who grew up in the war, and they said, gosh, that's exactly, the, we saw the word the duration all the time. So I like that. Big fan of uh, a Brick Lane by uh, Monica Alley, if you can believe the central love affair. Mm-hmm. That would be my main question for the, uh, the A-level um, students. Oh, and Waterland by Graham Swift, which I hope we're going to do an episode on anyway. That is an absolutely terrific book, I think. You'd sort of expect some of them, but uh, William Trevor's Lo- Love and Summer. And what else is a little bit of a surprise? Uh, Stephen Kelman's Pigeon English, maybe not so surprising. Yeah, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguru. That's, um, I don't know if I find that surprising. No, I mean, he's a I. Nobel winner now. No. It's sort of a given that he's kind yeah, so, of. Sorry, I've moved, I've, to be honest, I've moved on from surprising by then. Yeah. Uh, yes, do uh, let us know if there's any of those you'd especially like us to do. And as I say, we're starting um, with Ian McEwan's Atonement, shortlisted, as I say, in 2001, when it lost out to A True History of the Kelly Gang, another historical novel, I suppose, uh, by Peter Carey, uh, narrated by Ned Kelly, Australian outlaw, and a book famous, among other things, for having no commas. Also famous for being the one Peter Carey book that I really like. Um, there were other qu- quite well-known authors on the list. Uh, Andrew Miller with Oxygen, uh, David Mitchell with Number Nine Dream, and Ali Smith Hotel World. Although all of those would perhaps go on to write uh, better novels, most notably uh, Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, shortlisted in 2004. Uh, although I'm also a big fan of Andrew Miller's 2018 uh, novel, Now We Shall Be Entirely Free, which didn't trouble the book of lists at all, in fact. Um, the other book on the list was Rachel Seifert's The Dark Room, Like Atonement, partly about the Second World War, uh, with particular reference to the long-term psychological effects in Germany. Um, we thought we might start by just saying a little bit about Ian McEwen himself. Yeah, uh, McEwen, in my eyes, kind of belongs to a kind of generation of uh, male writers who really hit it off in the 80s, and who indeed he was friends with, like Martin Amis, Julian Barnes. McEwen uh, was included on the 1983 grant list of 20 best young British novelists. He kind of started out more as a short story writer. A lot of them kind of were seen as quite grotesque and dark and psychologically stirring. Uh, well, I thought he, because he, he got the name, which is, is a cliche that I Ian Macabre. Ian Macabre. And um, I think he, I did see one interview where he looked back on those short stories with something, not exactly embarrassment, but just glad that he didn't do them anymore, I think. Uh, and his first two novels were quite grim as well. I don't know. I, I was listening to an um, interview with him on This Cultural Life on the BBC where he's, he, I think he was still pretty much maintaining, I mean, this interview was from just a few months ago. He was still maintaining that those stories were were written with a degree of sympathy, but probably started out as a short story writer in any case because he uh, was one of the first, if not the first, student of the now famous um, UEA Writers Program. That's right, yeah, University of East Anglia for any Americans <laughs> or anybody else listening in, uh, which was then headed by um, Malcolm Bradbury, and he was its lone student. And apparently he says he just got endless encouragement from Badbury. There was no workshopping. There was no sort of discussion. He would just reel off short stories and do comp lit for a year, which sounds glorious to me. It sounds like something you don't really get to do anymore, Um, at least not without all the workshopping. So he's been shortlisted for atonement, but you may also know him by other book novels such as Amsterdam or Saturday, more generally from his most recent book Lessons, which is semi-autobiographical. Or other titles such as um, Black Dogs from 1992 or On Chesil Beach from 2007. Yeah, I mean, he's it, it, written a lot and a lot of different books. Um, I suppose 
like most authors, some better than others, but always, you always it's a pretty safe pair of hands. You always know he's not going to let you down any a McEwan book, is it? It's never going to be, never going to be terrible. No, well, I mean, this is the first year I've had reading his books and I've gotten really into them. I keep telling everyone that I'm having a kind of, instead of having a hot girl summer, I'm having an Ian McEwan summer, which I don't know how, whether you take that as a, I would take that as an upgrade. They're really good books. No, they really are. Uh, and I, I, I would maintain the term and the best of the lot. Yeah, it uh, is. And it feels almost cliche to say it because it's the best known and certainly yeah. the most acclaimed. But there is a reason for that. It's just a like astonishingly beautiful, I don't know, almost cinematic kind of book. Uh, shall, I, shall I say a word about the plot? Yes, you should. Uh, I should say there will be spoiler alerts in this because um, we're... As I say, well, if you're doing it at school, we're rather hoping that you might have read it. Or, um, and also, it's so it's so well known in the films, so well known that we thought we might as well just say what happens, which is as follows. It's in four parts. It starts in 1935 with a Bryony Tallis, who's a 13-year-old girl, putting on a play that she's written. She's a sort of budding writer. Uh, her cousins have arrived from the the north, north the distant north, <laughs> as it's called, um, uh, because their uh, parents have broken up. Her brother Leon is also uh, returning home with a friend called Paul Marshall, who's a um, sort of chocolate millionaire. But while Bryony is sort of coming to terms with all that or getting getting a play ready, which eventually she calls off, I think, partly because, well, it all slightly falls apart. But she notices from her window um, Robbie Turner, who is um, a sort of friend of the f- family. He's... Um, he's their gardener, really. Yeah, yeah, he is their gardener and he's the son of, a, of, a, of, the, of the housekeeper. And he's been funded through Cambridge by their dad. By the Tallis's dad, I should yes, say. By the, sorry, yes, by the Tallis's dad, I should say. Um, and he got a first at Cambridge. And he's sort of grown up with Cecilia, who also went to Cambridge and didn't do quite so well, uh, Cecilia being uh, Bryony's older, older sister. The first bit is all set on a really warm, very hot summer's day during a heat wave. Uh, and quite early on in that summer's day during a heat wave, Robbie and Cecilia realise that they've fallen for each other or perhaps loved each other all along. Bryony sees Robbie and Cecilia uh, by a fountain. She, they've broken a vase and some pieces have gone into it and Cecilia strips off to her underwear and goes in to get it. And already Bryony is trying to put together a story because she doesn't really know what's going on. She doesn't know about the broken vase, she thinks. Well, he's, she sort of thinks that Cecilia may be um, in some sort of danger. She perceives yeah. some sort of threat in the way that Robbie's standing. Or She's a very fanciful child. So Indeed. And th- this is this is absolutely um, made a lot worse, as, uh, according to Bryony, when um, Robbie writes a letter um, saying his feelings, that he says that he's fallen for her. And um, then, sort of for his own amusement, he does one version of the letter where he says, I want to do things to your... Well, I'm afraid the word... Well, the C See word. you next Tuesday. <laughs> yes, okay. But then he writes the proper letter without without the rude bit. He gives the letter to Bryony, realizes he's given her the wrong one with the with the rude bit in, uh, which Bryony reads before she delivers it, and therefore decides that he's a maniac, a sex maniac, a sex maniac, without really obviously knowing quite what a sex maniac is, or indeed quite what the C word is. But 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 she decides he's a maniac. A, a theory that is rather corroborated because Cecilia actually finds the letter. She doesn't object, does she? It sort of unlocks her in a way, as, as he puts it. And um, the two have sex in a library. But unfortunately, Bryony walks in and sees them and decides that Robbie is attacking her sister. Then, twins from up north go missing. And everyone goes out to see them, uh, to, to, to try and find them around the grounds of this enormous country house where, where, where they all are. And Bryony finds the older cousin, 
the oldest cousin, Lola, who's 15, uh, basically being raped. And she decides that she saw Robbie doing it. And she sticks to her story. Decides is a key point of, yeah. of that. Um, she's given chances to recant, but it fits in so clearly with what she thinks is going on. Mm. And Robbie is arrested and, as we later learn, jailed. And that's the end of part one. Part two cuts to Dunkirk, where Robbie has been released from jail on the grounds that he'll become an infantryman. An astonishingly vivid um, picture of retreat to Dunkirk. Um, at the end of which, Robbie makes it there. And we last hear him say, wake me up at seven. He's in a bad way, but he, but he, but the boats are on the way. Part three, Bryony is doing sort of penance because she by now she realises not only that it wasn't Robbie, but that it actually was Paul Marshall, this chocolate millionaire guy. And Bryony hears that um, Paul Marshall, the, the rapist, is actually marrying the rapee, Lola, um, goes to their wedding and then visits uh, her sister, which is the clip we heard right at the beginning there, the Cecilia, who's cut herself off from the family. Bryony goes there to try and sort things out. Robbie is there. As I say, not in particularly forgiving mode, but she, she agrees to uh, do the best she can to put things right, at least to tell their parents that it wasn't him, and if possible, to get it put it right legally, even though that's not clear. But then uh, here comes the big spoiler, the big twist. So that at that point, the novel is signed BT 1999, so it's a book written by Bryony Tallis. And the big twist is that in the final part, Bryony, who is now uh, 77 uh, and suffering from vascular dementia, um, reveals that actually that was a novel she wrote to try and put things right or to, to, to try and make things at least a bit better because actually Robbie died at Dunkirk and um, Cecilio was killed in a, in a bomb attack on uh, Balham tube station in 1940 as well. So they never got together. There was never a, it was never resolved. Nothing was ever sorted. So I suppose first question, Joe, what do you make of all that then? Oh my God, it's my favourite book this year that I've read. It's absolutely exquisite in every single way, on every single level. The prose is flawless. The gradual sort of revelations of characters' motives are so subtly done. And the imagery is exquisite. And I could actually just rave about this book for a full week, never mind an hour. In my eyes, it is actually almost a flawless novel. I, actually, I'll cancel out the almost, it is a flawless novel. And you don't mind that it turns out not to have been true? Oh my God, it's even better. Are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> McEwen said when he sent it to his editor, he included an apologetic letter explaining that because of that trick at the end, and it was only a novel and it's a book about how whether writing a novel can put things right, meant that it was a book for other writers and he anticipated modest sales. Mm. And he says that my editor phoned back and said, you're so wrong, it's about the Second World War, a country house and a love affair, it's going to be huge. <laughs> so uh, what do I know about publishing? McEwen went on, there are three things that people in Britain fall over for. If you want to get rich, you have to have a country house, a love affair, some barbed wire and some howitzers. And uh, of course, this book's got them all. But also that big twist that it's a novel about what novels do to reality which is uh, fundamentally to distort it. Now, you, you, you will, you, you'll know this, of course, Joe, but um, there's a debate that writers always have with themselves, which perhaps in over-simple terms is that fiction is supposed to be a portrait of life, but it has the big problem that fiction is essentially orderly. Things make sense. One thing leads to another in a basic cause and effect. Characters are sort of coherent. As you say, you, know, you can see their motives, and there's a clear shape. Life, on the other hand, is none of those. So e even Bryony in her younger days. So she, she, the whole of the book, she's rewriting exactly what she saw and what she did. And, and when she's um, in the hospital, 
she decides that, as Andrew, that, that, that same problem she faces. She says, the age of clear answers was over. So was the age of characters and plots. She no longer really believed in characters. They were quaint devices that belonged to the 19th century. The very concept of character was founded on errors that modern psychology had exposed. Plots, too, were like rusted machinery whose wheels would no longer turn. A modern novelist could no more write characters and plots than a modern composer could a Mozart symphony. And yet, of course, when it comes to it, she writes all of the characters and plots, the Mozart symphony version. And I think that's the same with, with, with McEwen. I mean, you could criticise his books, I think, for being almost too competent. Someone once said of him, um, in his careful, excessively managed universes in which everything is made to fit together, the reader is offered many of the true pleasures of fiction, but sometimes starred with its truest difficulties. And it's not here. You know, it's not in Atonement. McEwen himself, his next book, Saturday, there's a, the main character who's a, a, a surgeon, Henry Perone, who is against fiction, because he says moments of precise reckoning are rare in real life. Questions of misinterpretation are not often resolved, nor do they remain pressingly unresolved. They simply fade. And yet, of course, the whole of Atonement is based on the fact that questions of misinterpretation are either resolved or remain pressingly unresolved. So, so I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that, because this impulse to wrap something neatly in a bow or to narrativize it isn't just a function of the text itself. And I don't think it's just a function of literature. It's a deeply human thing to do. So a lot of characters in the book do it too. And I was trying to find this while you were speaking. Bryony's mother, Mrs. Tallis, constructing a whole narrative around Lola in her mind about how Lola reminds her of her own sister who is selfish, who wants glamorous things, who wants to run off and never take responsibility. And it's just this, you know, how old is Lola at that point? She's 15. 15. 15-year-old girl, her niece, that she's, you know, creating a whole sort of familial trial in her mind around for absolutely no reason other than on a separate occasion, her sister has had a divorce and sort of dumped her with her children, but the children aren't at fault. So Emily's, you know, an example of this idea of... Emily, Emily being Mrs. Emily, Tallis. Emily Tallis and Mrs. Tallis is this example of, you know, um, the actually, I think, quite chaotic impulse, natural impulse that most people and indeed most characters in this book have um, to, yes, wrap things in a bow, but then the the chaos that springs out of that is as as in this book is very unwieldy i mean lola convinces herself you know whether for well i mean it's implied that it's for money by the end of the book lola convinces herself to marry her rapist and that you know just because in her mind that narrative makes sense but actually what she ends up is trapped in a marriage that's based on trauma so even in the sort of i guess um, I'm sort of half agreeing with you and half disagreeing with you. Even in the sort of minutiae of this book, you do have that instinct to, I don't know, I guess to gather everything neatly into a plausible story just on an individual level to make sense of your own life. But the end result is always fairly horrific and, and nothing like the story you were telling yourself in your head. I mean, yes, Atonement is a, a very well-constructed novel, but I don't think it loses sight of that very human mess. We've been talking a lot about the form of the story, but I, I suppose we should actually talk about the story itself because there's a lot of meat on the bones. So I suppose one of the core questions this book asks is, is in fact, its titular 
concept, the, the idea of atonement, does, do you think Bryony manages to set things right by writing this book in memory of Robbie and Celia? And giving them the happy ending that life didn't give them. Yes. Um, no. And I don't think uh, she, me neither. I don't, <laughs> and I don't think she does either. On a different level, because there's this very interesting thing that happens uh, when she puts aside childish things and she goes and trains as a nurse. And the reason that she does so is because her, her sister once did. Well, I suppose there are two questions wrapped up in there, really, now that I think about it. There's the atonement Bryony wants to perform towards Robbie and Cecilia, but then also there's there's the atonement that she sort of wants to bestow upon herself for all the guilt she feels. So feasibly, the novel makes her feel better, even though it doesn't fix anything. And is that good enough? But then more tangible things she does, like helping wounded soldiers in hospitals. Do you think that exonerates her in any sort of way? A bit. And I think McEwen does too. The book refers to Bryony's crime. And McEwen himself has said he doesn't see it as a crime. And you know, she basically did something terrible when she was a 13-year-old girl who thought she was more mature than she was and she made a, a dreadful mistake and it had unbelievably hideous consequences. But what else is she going to do? You know, is, is, is what she did about the best you can do in those dreadful, dreadful circumstances? I suppose there's also the fact that it's not just her crime it's also paul marshall's for raping lola it's yeah. lola's for not speaking up once she'd realized that it wasn't robbie i mean she the uh, book clearly says that uh, lola was attacked while it was dark so she doesn't see her attacker but she does at some point come to realize who it is and she never comes forward so this idea of it being solely bryony's crime is a skewed one as well yeah no i do feel sorry for bryony and actually coming this is a slightly different point but <laughs> But that idea that you things are terrible, so you rewrite them to put them right, mm. um, I think also explains to, to some extent why Dunkirk plays such a big part. Yes, because because you know I, I I certainly grew up in maybe even you did the, the idea that Dunkirk was a you know an astonishing triumph. Triumph, yeah, uh, and uh, the, the, the you know hurrah for the heroism heroism of the, of the small boats and everything. But Dunkirk was an unbelievably terrible it route. It was a catastrophe, cat cataclysmic defeat that got rewritten by history to make it more palatable. And he, Churchill making speeches. And uh, McEwen, uh, you know, restores all its absolute horror. Since we've put this forward as a as a help to students, among other things, we're hoping people of all ages and uh, backgrounds are, and, and so on are listening. But um, you've looked into some questions that seem to come up when this is a uh, when this is a set text. Yes, uh, a lot of the questions uh, actually tend to quite interestingly treat. They refer to atonement as a crime novel, which I I don't know how how far I would <laughs> agree mm. with that. But they seem to be referring to the idea of uh, Bryony committing a crime and her culpability. Uh, the questions also tend to focus on class, which is valid, I think far more valid than the crime question. Yeah, because McEwen doesn't see it as a crime novel. Though I'm reminded there's a good interview with him where he's he, he, when he's first put on the A-level syllabus, it, wasn't, it was for Enduring Love, I think. Yes. And he said he found one of his son's essays lying about, which started off, uh, in this passage, McEwen says so-and-so. And he said, I didn't want him to put McEwen. I wanted him to put Dad. Yeah. <laughs> but then but then he said he gave him some top tips as to what exactly was going on. Yeah. And, the, and the guy got really low, his kid got really low marks. <laughs> so what does the author know? Because he definitely doesn't see this as a crime novel. He doesn't see Bryony's no. thing as a crime. He sees it as a mistake, a really sad and regrettable mistake that a 13-year-old girl, particularly in an imaginative 
budding novelisty thirteen year old girl would do. The class the class is definitely there. Let's talk it? about class and love, yeah. James. <laughs> class, class and love, okay. There there is actually a, quite an interesting link between the two in my mind, uh, where Bryony is concerned. Uh, she's a girl who, you know, grows up in this bucolic English countryside manner. And all she does is spend time reading and writing stories about knights and medieval England. Like even when the when the C word uh, comes up and she's trying to make sense of it, I mean, she makes sense of it in a, she's like a 13 year old girl and she makes sense of it in the most upper middle class way I've ever heard. She says, she tried to prevent it sounding in her thoughts and yet it danced through them obscenely, a typographical demon juggling vague insinuating anagrams, an uncle and a nut, the Latin for next, an old English king attempting to turn back the tide. <laughs> you know? Uh, can you get onto the bit, isn't a bit about sort of the, the figures under a crucifix or something? Oh later my on. God. Three right. figures huddling at the foot of a cross. <laughs> That the word had been written by a man confessing to an image in his mind, confining a lonely preoccupation, disgusted her profoundly. My point is that later on in the novel, around the same time, it's revealed that Bryony has actually made moves on Robbie, which he rejected roundly because she was a child. So there's a, a scene that's recalled, I think by Robbie, yes, by Robbie, in which uh, Bryony throws herself into a river as well as a way of showing Robbie that she, she loves him. him. Yeah, yeah she, she wants him to rescue her. And so she throws herself into a river and he, you know, realizes that she might die and puts his life at risk, jumping in after her to save her. And when he drags her out, oh, well, Bryony says to him, do you know why I wanted you to save me? And Robbie says, no. Isn't it obvious? No, it isn't. Because I love you. She, being Bryony, said it bravely, with chin upraised, and she blinked rapidly as she spoke, dazzled by the momentous truth she had revealed. He restrained an impulse to laugh. He was the object of a schoolgirl crush. What on earth do you mean by that? I mean what everybody else means when they say it. I love you. This time, the words were on a pathetic rising note. He realised that he should resist the temptation to mock, but it was difficult. He said... You love me, so you threw yourself in the river. I wanted to know if you'd save me. And now you know, I'd risk my life for yours, but that doesn't mean I love you. She drew herself up a little. I want to thank you for saving my life. I'll be eternally grateful to you. Lines, surely, from one of her books, one she had read lately, or one she had written. And I think there are a lot of things wound into those two scenes when you put them side by side. In the first place, there's, you know, this idea of a 13-year-old girl who has all the time in the world to construct an idea of love out of books or writing them or plays. Whereas if you put that, if you place that next to Robbie's idea of love for Celia, for this girl who's inaccessible to him by means of, because, you know, he's not born into enough wealth to really access her, he has a far more tortured and protracted time of it and then I find it really interesting that Bryony's idea of getting Robbie to profess his love for her should it exist is essentially through an act of service or servitude considering that he's already her family's gardener it's just a little yeah, bit yeah, too yeah. on the nose you know yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if Bryony is even aware of this as she's doing it she's probably not because she's a child but to her you know the only way that Robbie could show her love is by risking his life or at least sort of discomforting himself immensely 
and then for her to say thank you very much <laughs> yes no, 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 and, and well obviously that's from stories that you know the heroine gets rescued but I, from, from drowning by the, by the it also i think then throws back to the opening scene in the fountain yeah where cecilia goes in and i think Bryony sort of half sees that as robbie saving her from drowning or, or, mm. or there's something you know that that's that's part of what happens but actually, when love goes on. Sorry to, to cut across you, no, but no. this whole idea of it being Celia who goes into the fountain, Celia who strips herself, there's this quite a protracted moment of prose in which she's taking her clothes off. And yes, this is partly because it arouses Robbie, but I guess also because it inverts their roles a little bit. The fact that it's Celia discomforting herself, going into the water, looking for the piece of the vase that Robbie broke. Um, suddenly she's the person who's sort of, I mean, quite literally lower you know as she's seeking for the porcelain in the water and I think the things are, it may I, be a more valid like, start for love in their case than what Bryony demonstrated another point I might add about class is, is, is even when when they're checking out just to make sure the police are checking out to make sure it's, it's not it, that it is Robbie the only other suspect is, is the handyman's son yes never crosses anyone's mind that it's Paul Marshall the chocolate millionaire and then in another another class thing is, is that Robbie, when he gets to Dunkirk, um, is suddenly is, and is suddenly <laughs> the posh one. Yeah. So he's got these two corporal, even though he's a private, because he can only be a private because he's in prison. But he's leading two corporals, two mm -hmm. sort of cockney corporals, um, towards towards the beaches, uh, and they they they're struck by his poshness. So then suddenly he's the posh one. It's so cruel. Yeah, it, it really is. is. Actually, I could I could ask you this straight out, Joe, if, if this fits in. You know, this idea that the most sophisticated readers actually just want to be told a story. Was there any part of you that was kind of thought, oh, when it turned out to all be like a tricksy, when Bryony says actually none of this actually happened, it wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't quite like that. Is there any part of you who thinks, oh, Ian, you know, you didn't have to do that. You could have just ended it where, you, you know, you could have just ended it where it ended on that happy ending of Robbie and them back together. Um, or are you way too sophisticated for that? I, I'm always, I'm always a bit like that with novels where, that idea, you know, that you want to know what really happened, I know is naive, and I know that none of it really happened because it's all it's all fiction. But there is part of you that wants to know what really happened. And that what that, do you mean by what really happened? Well, but Brownie refers to that at, at one point, slightly right at the end, I think, slightly. I don't know if it's sneeringly or not. Um, I know there is always a certain kind of reader who will be compelled to ask what really happened. And she says the answer is simple, the lovers survive and flourish. As long as there is a single copy, a single typescript of my final draft, then my spontaneous sister and her me medical prince survive to love. And she says, no, what really happened is what really happened in the book. But we know it's not what really happened in life, except that what happens in life is in the book. I know it, it's, it's all quite complicated, but, but I do, I do, with Trixie books, which serve up several endings, it might have been this, it might have been this, it might have been this. There's part of me that thinks, yeah, that's brilliant, that's because that is, you know, that's how fiction and life work and everything. There's part of me that just thinks, just tell me what really happened, will you? We, we, yeah. well, we, we, well, we promised at the start that we'd get back to the film, and yeah. so shall we? You're, you're a big fan, of We aren't shall. You? Oh my God, I love this film. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to say that less desperately. <laughs> So desperately as you like. We shall. Um, it, it does happen to be one of my favourite films. Um, but I don't think I'm biased when I say that it is possibly one of the most faithful interpretations of a novel I've seen on screen in my life. Astonishingly so, isn't it? I mean, I don't, I actually could not see a teacher objecting to a student watching this film as an aid to reading the book. Actually, I pro had probably seen the film 
something like, I'm not exaggerating when I say 30 to 40 times before I ever read the novel. And that's actually probably underselling it. And I was quite shocked at how well they paired together. And it's in really unexpected ways too. So a fact that I actually really love, I'm just going to drop this in because it's one of my favorite things about this. The first part that takes place in the Talis household where this idea of a hazy summer day where the Talis's wealth is abundant and anything might happen and there's a sort of gauze of fiction that you don't know about covering the proceedings, which will be broken by the end of the film. One of the ways that's conveyed by Joe Wright is that he put a quite specifically Dior stocking over the camera lens to film through for that entire sequence. Oh, How opulent is that? But it's also, it, it also I, I think one of the ways in which it's faithful um, is that it does the same thing as the book does, which is it's almost a pastiche mm. while also being great. Yeah. So it's almost a pastiche of a country house film, the first bit. Um, there's the, it was most famous for the, um, I think when it came out, as I remember from the reviews, there's an astonishing sort of shot. Um, what's that shot where you could just go sweeping it's out? It's like a drone else, shot. Yeah, go right over the top and showing the beaches of Dunkirk. But at the end of that, you don't think, wow, the beaches of Dunkirk. You think, wow, what an amazing aerial shot. <laughs> and, and also, particularly the end, so it has the same twist at the end. Vanessa Redgrave turns up as the elderly Bryony and says, you know, who can, who can, I did the right thing. I've given them their happiness. Mm. I gave them their happiness. And then we cut to them being happy. Um, they, um, so Robbie and uh, Cecilia, uh, after the war, uh, arrive at this house. And they're sort of on the beach with the raves crashing. They're swinging each other by the arms. That footage looks like it's been shot on a Bolex as well. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I, I don't think many people in real life do that. No. Loads and loads of people in films do. Mm. And yet it's still affecting. Yeah. So it's a slightly corny, filmy thing, and yet it still really, really works. Just like, as in the book, some of the writing, a little bit over the top, a little bit, but it still really, really works, and, and it equally deliberate. Yeah. I think perhaps some of the things that you'd miss if, um, you know, I remember being a student. I know that if I could, I'd watch the film instead of read the book just to save myself some time. But some of the, there, there are things that the film misses. I think it does a good job of conveying um, a young Bryony's sort of desire to write and her fancifulness, but it doesn't fully get to the extent of how indulgent and wide ranging she is with fictionalizing aspects of her, of her life. So for example, there's a whole sort of, paragraph that we spoke about of her trying to make sense of the c word through references to crucifixes or latin or whatever in the film that is just conveyed through it's actually probably why the um, score got an oscar out of anything kind of the sound of a typewriter going through her mind as she's reading but it doesn't really you don't really see it from the kind of upper middle class thought or chain of thought that runs through her head all you see is the shock on her face. So finer points like that, that a film can't really convey. And also some things it's just not time for. So the, re the, 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 the retreat to Dunkirk is quite like all the details that yeah. um, McEwen researched in the Imperial War Museum, the astonishing details. Um, most, quite a lot of them get lost. All right, James, we, we've had like uh, an influx of uh, 
requests for help for the Booker Clinic. Oh yes, the Booker Clinic seems which, to be which, taken off, yeah. Yeah, which I think is down to the fact that I, I put out a far less uh, civil call to action across my socials than Booker usually does. Yes, I saw that. It could, could have been, um, I think, summarised by get your effing fingers out, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it sounds as if they sort of have, actually. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to take a firm hand with people. Um, and by people, I don't mean you, dear, dear listeners. Oh, I should say before all of this, though, that a lot of your sort of requests for help or advice are going apparently to our Instagram inbox and they should be going to our email address at contact us at uh, bookerprizefoundation.org uh, so send them there instead please and we'll read through them so Anon says I currently live and work far away from old friends and family I love where I am but I still miss them and often feel that there is two of me one is in a new country doing exciting things the other is still back home with her family living her old life help uh, I don't know if this is help exactly. It's one of those sort of helps where it proves you're not alone and that other people have shared this experience because the book that immediately springs to mind is Brooklyn by Colin Toybean, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2009. And it's about Ellis Lacey, who's a young Irish woman who moves to New York in search of a sort of better life and sort of finds it. But at the same time, she can't help missing her folks back in Ireland. And I mean, essentially, that... Booker Clinic is is the plot of Brooklyn, yeah. and I hope that make you realise that it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't give you the answer. It just shows that that is a a difficult situation that has been faced and is faced by Ellis Lacey, and very touchingly and very honestly in Brooklyn. So I, I think there'll be some consolation in in the recognition of that situation. I hope so, and uh, good luck. That was actually going to be my recommendation as well. And the, actually, though, there's a really great um, film adaptation with Saoirse Ronan, actually. It's all fitting together. It's and not all only coming that, together. A, a screenplay by a booker, long-listed author. Nick Hornby. Indeed. So that rounds us off really nicely. If you have any uh, dilemmas that you'd like us to help you with through the medium of booker literature, once again, please do send them in to contact us at bookerprizefoundation.org. Uh, and don't forget also, if you uh, any books on your school syllabus you'd like us to cover, then do send them in. But the, this uh, podcast being what it is, ruthlessly, they have to have been at least long-listed for the Booker Prize. And I think that's it for today, is it, Joe? Yeah, that's it. Good uh, luck with your A-levels, Oh, Good luck with your A-levels, and if it helps, which it might not. When I, at my great age, have anxiety dreams now, they're still all about A-levels. So good luck. Really? <laughs> yes, they really are. <laughs> Do you know what the best advice my uh, my teachers ever gave me was just, you know, like study consistently and the night before, just do something really, really fun. And the morning of, just relax. Like, don't do all the cramming and the revision. Just chill out like, in the uh, roughly about 30 hours prior to the exam. Let it go. That's your advice from your Auntie Joe, there, kids. <laughs> That's it for this week. If you haven't already followed the show, please do. And remember to leave a rating. You can find us at thebookerprizes.com and on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Substack at The Booker Prizes. We'd love to know how you get on with your studies for atonement or what you thought of atonement more generally. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Kevin Miolo. And the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy Supi production for The Booker Prizes. 